passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it is good to worship with you, uh, if that is um, how we describe it in this unique situation. Um, many of you are aware that we've been going through the Gospel of Mark over the last uh, several months, uh, over a year. And uh, last week, we, we pressed pause on that in the midst of the uncertainty that we find ourselves in and, and uh, really wanted to just look at what is our right heart posture in the midst of this season of um, really the COVID-19 uh, season. And so uh, we, we did that last week. And, and this morning, I, I want us to, to continue in that vein of thinking and, and not just think about what is our right heart posture, but also to ask the question, how might God use this season for good in my life? And that's not to, to diminish the very real struggles that are facing us. Cases of COVID-19 have skyrocketed over the last week here in the United States. We now have more confirmed cases than any other nation on earth. Last week, over 3.25 million people filed for unemployment in one week. And the highest for one week before that was 600,000. This is a very difficult, hard time. And, and for many of us, it's likely to get only worse. And yet, if we truly believe that God is the one who is in charge or over all of our circumstances, both the good and the bad, the, the comfortable and, and the, the trying, if we believe that God remains seated on his throne, then it's worth us asking, how might God use this season for good in my life? And that's why we're taking this, what was originally just a one-week standalone looking at Psalm 73, and now we're, we're spreading it into a series looking at how God might use this to, to cultivate a deeper trust and a deeper faith in him. I don't know how long this is going to last, but we're calling it Through the Valley because we want to ask these questions of how God is present in the valley of our life. How does God work while I am in the midst of the valley? How can we, along with King David, say in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And this is certainly a valley of life, isn't it? And we have no idea how long we are going to be here. Are we going to be here for weeks? Are we going to be here for months? We don't know, and I don't know about you, in the midst of the valleys, in the midst of these hard times, I find that as the, the stresses go up, as the tensions raise, I also find myself becoming shorter. I become uh, more stressed, more anxious, more irritable towards those who are around me. And in the midst of the valley, the fruit that I oftentimes produce is not the fruit that I desire to produce. And so we ask this question, of what would it be like for us to not just be a people who survive this season in the valley, but also for us to be a people who flourish in the midst of the valley? What would it be like for us to bear fruit right now? Not just in the normal seasons of life, but right now in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the pressure cooker of life, how can I be a fruitful person? And that question, in large part, is what the book of Philippians is about. Philippians is unique in the New Testament because it's not written addressing some sort of theological issue. 
There's not a question burning on the horizon that, that really forces us to ask these questions of what do I believe? Instead, Philippians says, here's what I believe. Now, how does that change how I live? Consider Paul's prayer in Philippians chapter 1. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Just a few verses later in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he, he desires that the people in Philippi would live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your, life be, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Philippians chapter 2, we have this beautiful picture of who Jesus is, that Jesus is God himself who, is, who has come to earth, has become human, and in, in becoming human, he, he goes to death on the cross for us and has now been exalted into the highest place above every other name. But the reason why Paul shares that is so that we as a church, we as Christians might live in light of the glorious truth of the gospel. Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of the others. How the gospel changes, transforms the way I live, that is the heart of the book of Philippians. My life should look radically different because of Jesus and because of the gospel. But this isn't a letter that is written to Christians who are on the mountaintops of life. This is written to a church that is suffering. They are in the valley. Yes, they are suffering. Their context is different because they're suffering for the sake of the gospel. It's not a global pandemic. And yet they find themselves facing hardship. They're scared to share their faith because of what might happen because of that. And, and Paul says, hey, you know, I'm in prison because of the gospel, and look at what has happened when I have shared the gospel. Others have been emboldened in their faith, and you should as well. Philippians chapter 1, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This church in Philippi, they don't want to suffer, and yet Paul says we should look at suffering not as something that is a burden for us, but instead as a, as a beautiful gift from God. Philippians chapter 1 again. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. But while... The circumstances surrounding their suffering, is, they're different than, than our circumstances. This call for us to stand firm, to be a people who stand firm in the valley, no less relevant for us this morning and in our current context. How do we, in the midst of hardships, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of unknowns, how do we bear fruit that honors Jesus in the midst of the valley? When I am consumed by what is happening all around me in the world, how do I become more Christ-like? How do I, to use the language that Paul prays for the Philippian church in chapter 1, how do I bear the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ? 
And at the end of his letter, Paul gives us a bunch of rapid-fire commands of how to live out the gospel. And I want us to just focus on four of them this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, give us four fruits for us to, to cultivate in our lives right now. So let's go ahead and turn our attention to Philippians chapter 4. But before we do that, we're going to pause and, and pray this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we do give thanks for your word. We thank you that it is always in season. It always has something to say to us. We recognize that it always points us to you if we are willing to listen. And so this morning, as, as we are crowded by so many voices, so, so many thoughts, so many worries, Lord, we do ask that you would help us to listen to you. God, we do thank you for your spirit, who even though we're not to get, gathered together here in person, is still able to teach us and make us more like you. God, we would be remiss if we didn't take time to, to pray for your mercy in the midst of this hard and challenging situation. God, we pray for healing. We pray for your presence to be at work in our community and in our world. And God, that you would spare people because of your love for your creation. Jesus, in this uncertain time, we want you to make us more like you. And so God, we pray that you would help us to be a fruitful people in the valley, that our hope would not be rooted in a normal life, whatever that may look like but instead it would be rooted in our victory at the cross. Help us, Lord, to be a people who grow in faith and obedience in the hardest of circumstances, in the most uncertain of times. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I mentioned we'll be in Philippians chapter 4 this morning, verses 4 through 7. Many of you are undoubtedly familiar with this passage, especially if you've been in the church, especially in this season filled with anxiety and worry. So let's go ahead and read through these verses together before we break them apart and look at the fruit that we are to cultivate in our lives. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is the first fruit that we are to cultivate in our lives? Well, that's what we see in verse 4. Joy. We are to cultivate joy in our lives. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul's words here are written to a church that, are, that is suffering, and they're just absolutely fascinating words. Paul doesn't say to this church, look, I, I know things are bad. I, I know that, that you're, you're going through a lot right now, but hang in there because things are going to get better. That if you just, if you just keep pressing on, then things are going to be better for you. No, he, he doesn't talk about any of that. And he just says, rejoice. Be a people who rejoice. This is, this is something that is a crucial part of being a Christian. This is why he repeats it. He says it multiple times in this verse. Rejoicing is, is not optional. It's necessary in the Christian life. And he points out that it should be done always. This isn't something that should be ruled or dictated by our circumstances, but instead is something that should be done all the time. And even though the circumstances have changed in the last 2,000 years, we're not in the same situation the church in Philippi was. The, the command here is still the same. 
for us to be a people who rejoice. And that command is it's a command, which is significant. That command is radically countercultural right now. Because our default tendency when we are faced with hardship, when we find ourselves in the valley, is to turn inward, to look to self-pity in a season of hardship. And, and I alluded to that a little bit last week in Psalm 73. When we think that this life is not fair because of our circumstances, that's, that's self-pity. When we are faced with a lot of stuff that we don't want, a lot of stuff is going on right now. It doesn't seem fair to our families, and especially if we've gotten sick or, or our family members have gotten sick or, or if we've had to change or, or cancel travel plans or, or if we've lost our job or seen a significant decrease in our income or, or if we find ourselves where our kids are, are just missing school. We can, we can find ourselves in this moment where we comfort ourselves with self-pity. And it actually works at least for a while. We feel good about ourselves because we feel bad, ironically. And we comfort ourselves with self-pity. And, and don't get me wrong, there's, there's nothing wrong with grieving these losses. There's nothing wrong uh, about these pains and, and just not wanting them to happen. The Psalms are filled with examples of, of different people crying out to God, saying, how long, O oh Lord, how long is this going to go on? People are crying out, grieving the loss of circumstances or the, the change of life. That These things aren't wrong to lament. But the fruit of righteousness that we must bear in the valley is not the fruit of self-pity, but instead the fruit of rejoicing. That we must be a people of joy. And that joy is rooted, as we're soon going to see, it's rooted in the Lord. It's not rooted in any other place. And that joy will help us to weather this storm and any other storm we may face in life. Now, don't get hung up on what it exactly looks like for us to rejoice. What it looks like is not important. What is a focus here is a deep-rooted joy that is unshakable joy that is not defined by our circumstances, but instead is found in the Lord. Paul doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. Paul doesn't say that you can comfort yourself by looking to an end date for this suffering. That go through it for another week, go through it for another month, and there is going to be a time where this is going to come to an end. And so rejoice because you can endure it right now because six months from now it's going to be better. He doesn't say that. And that's particularly convicting to me in this time. I don't, I don't know about you, but in the midst of these stressful circumstances, I oftentimes find myself running to a place of comfort, this attitude that says, this is only temporary. This is only going to last for a while, just a couple weeks, maybe a little bit longer than that, maybe a couple months, but eventually this is going to run its course. Eventually things are going to return to normal, and I can keep my chin up. I can endure this. I cannot be a pessimist. Because this isn't going to last forever. And if we do that, if we comfort ourselves, if we, if we take joy in the fact that this has an end date, it will provide some sense of joy. But Paul tells us that we are settling for second best. 
true joy, true rejoicing doesn't come from the fact that this has an end date. It comes from the Lord Jesus. Significantly, he qualifies our rejoicing. When he does that, he actually frees us from being chained to our circumstances. Our circumstances are going to change. They're going to fail us. They're going to fade away. But what we have in Christ, what we have in the Lord will never fail, will never spoil, will never expire. Joy in the Lord can never be taken away from us because no one can take our victory in Christ away from us. I love the way one author puts it. He says this, in one sense, the command to rejoice in the Lord is so self-evidently right that it is embarrassing that we should have to be reminded of it. Surely all redeemed men and women will want to rejoice in the Lord. Our sins have been forgiven. We have been declared righteous because another has borne our guilt. We have received the gift of the Spirit, the down payment of the promised inheritance that will be ours when Jesus comes again. We are children of the living God. Our lives, however long they may be, may be fraught with difficulty, but eternity awaits us secured by the Son of God. We rejoice in the Lord because of what Christ has done for us. Our circumstances, they may be hard. They may be frightening. They may be uncertain. They may leave much to be desired. And yet, they will never take away what the Lord Jesus has done for his people. And so, if we don't rejoice, if we're not a people of joy, The problem really boils down to one of two places. It's either because our problems have been blown out of proportion and are made bigger than they really are, or we've taken our God and we've shrunk him down to where he is too small. When we cannot rejoice, it is either one of these two things. We've made our problems bigger than they really are, or we've made our God smaller than he really is. If you view your circumstances and the problems that you face as too big, if they're out of the right perspective of who Jesus is, the work of Jesus on your behalf, then of course rejoicing is going to be hard. Of course it's going to be impossible if we make our problems bigger than God, who conquered sin, who conquered death for us, then it will be a chore It will be impossible for us to rejoice. And the same is true if we don't fully grasp, dwell on, take time to marvel at the goodness of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. If we take our Jesus and we shrink him, we make him smaller, less powerful, less demanding of us, less authoritative, so that way we don't have to listen to every single thing that he says, then of course it is going to be hard for us to rejoice. Our problems are going to be bigger than him, but when we remind ourselves of the reality of who Jesus is in comparison, our problems are light and momentary. Consider what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's such a beautiful passage. Because Paul reminds us, however real our circumstances are, however 
difficult they may be, whatever is facing us, whenever we are in the valley, it doesn't have to be suffering for the gospel. It can just be suffering as a part of a broken human life. When we suffer and we face hardship, we have an opportunity to grow and bear fruit in the valley. And when we do that, when we actually take that upon us, then, then this passage becomes true. This light, momentary affliction is producing fruit in us. It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comprehension. And so Paul says, rejoice. And listen, I, I know it's, it's difficult to, to rejoice right now. It is so easy for us to be consumed with the hardships that face us. And we live in a 24-hour news cycle. And in the face of this virus, the, the facts, the, the circumstances, they change on a daily basis. It's hard to even keep up with, with what's taking place each and every day. It is so easy for us to look at our problems and say, they're just too big. They're too big for me to handle, for me to grab my, to get my mind around. And, and years ago, I came across a quote by Ajit Fernando. Ajit Fernando is a, a Sri Lankan pastor. Uh, he gives us some helpful advice. I think I shared this in a sermon a couple years ago. It says this, glance at your problems, but gaze at Jesus. Glance at your problems, but gaze at Jesus. That's the key to rejoicing. That's the key to keeping your circumstances in the right perspective. There's nothing wrong with us being aware of the, the world's problems. In fact, we, we probably should to some extent. There are many of them, and, and they affect us to varying degrees, and they affect us in a very real way, especially this one. But don't give them all your attention. Don't gaze at your problems. Glance at them. Be, be aware of them, but gaze at Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Dwell on what he has done for you, and then rejoicing will follow. Cultivate joy in your life. Second fruit to cultivate in the valley is found in verse 5, gentleness. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. You'll notice I, I switched versions here, uh, translations. The ESV, it's probably more literal than what the NIV, what I just read, is saying, but it misses the heart of what Paul is trying to say. He's encouraging people to be known for gentleness. When we find ourselves in the middle of the valley, when we are in seasons of hardship and uncertainty, our natural state is for us to, to come back to ourselves, to begin thinking of ourselves first. And if you've been to the store in the midst of panic buying, you know exactly what I am talking about. Panic buying of groceries and enough evidence of the fact that we begin to think primarily of ourselves before we think of others. And it takes an intentional mindset to begin to think of others first. Paul says instead of thinking of yourself first, to begin to think of others and be concerned with them. I love the language that Paul uses here. He says that we should be, uh, our gentleness should be evident to all, that we should be known for our gentleness. This should be our reputation. What, what reputation do you desire, do you long for? What do you want to be known for by other people? Is it your success or your advancement and your vocation? Is it your intellect or your humor? Is it your success or your, your wisdom? 
your good looks, your physical fitness? Is it the fact that you have a great family or that you are well off financially? Maybe it's even that you want to be known as the person who has a great prayer life. Or you want to be known as someone who knows the Bible better than anyone else. Or you want to be known as a competent person who can teach the scriptures to others. What do you want to be known for? Paul tells us in all of these things that they're too self-centered. They're just too self-centered. They all build a reputation on our own successes, our own abilities, our own talents, our own giftedness. Instead, Paul says we should build a reputation on gentleness. This is what he has in mind in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you want to bear fruit right now in the valley, this is the perfect opportunity to be a person who develops and cultivates a reputation of gentleness. And when we look at Jesus, if Jesus himself, as we just saw in Philippians chapter 2, if Jesus himself didn't pursue his own good, his own self-exaltation, instead humbled himself and thought of others, then what gives us the right to think of ourselves first? If Jesus committed himself to a life of gentleness, of serving others, should we not do the same? Now, being gentle does not mean being a pushover. It means to consider others, to be kind, to be gracious, to be quick to listen, to be slow to speak. It is to emulate the example of Christ in our lives, even right now in the valley. So cultivate gentleness. Now, I love Paul's reason here at the end of verse 5, especially right now. I think it's so relevant for us. It's so important. I think this statement here at the end of verse 5, the Lord is near, is actually the key to understanding this entire passage. Why should you pursue the good of others? Why should you pursue this reputation of gentleness? It's because Jesus is at hand. Jesus is actually with you. There's... Some debate on what this actually means. Some people say the Lord at hand actually means that Jesus is coming soon. Some people say that the Lord is at hand means that Jesus is actually present with you. Both are true, but I think in the context of Philippians, in the midst of their suffering, it is a wonderful reminder that Jesus is with them in the midst of their hardships, in the midst of their suffering. And how different would it be for us if we lived with that type of perspective? The presence of God is with us at all times. That we would be so slow to think of ourselves first because the exalted one who did not even think of himself first is present with us. The Lord is at hand. It's a reminder to us that God is with us so we must cultivate the fruit of gentleness. Now, if we move to verse 6, we actually see that there's two different commands and they're really just two different sides of the same coin. But they're both important, so we're going to actually look at them individually. The first one is, isn't a fruit as much as something that is necessary for us to do if we are actually going to bear fruit in our lives. In other words, if we're going to be fruitful, we have to do this before we can bear fruit, and that is this, to prune anxiety. Prune anxiety. 
Do not be anxious about anything, Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Now, I don't know about you. That's a whole lot easier said than done, isn't it? You grew up in the church. You're undoubtedly familiar with this passage. You may have memorized it before. We actually are encouraging people to memorize it right now in this season of uncertainty and, and anxiety. Uh, but, but I'll be honest, knowing the contents of this passage and actually making it true, understanding it because of experience, those things are, are radically different. Where does Jesus say that the strength to not be anxious comes from? Do you remember what I mentioned last week as we were going through Psalm 73? Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew says that we must not be anxious about anything. And he roots uh, the reason why we are not to be anxious where? Let's look at verse uh, 32 through 34 of Matthew 6. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, all the things that you need, is what he has in mind. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus tells us that we don't have to be anxious, that we should not be anxious, because our heavenly Father cares for us. But Paul takes that beautiful truth, this beautiful gift that that God himself cares for each and every one of us, and he is going to take care of us, and, and, and he says That's not all. That's certainly one of the reasons why we don't have to be worried, why we don't have to be anxious. But there's another reason as well. That's what we just read. The end of verse 5, that the Lord is at hand. That we don't have to be anxious because Jesus is with us. That's a good gift from our Father, that the presence of Jesus is with us in the age of uncertainty that we find ourselves in. When anxiety and doubt and worry are so easy for us to fall into, we are are given two promises that we can be certain of, and that is that our Father loves us and that our Savior is with us. So don't be anxious people. Of course, this absolutely takes work, right? I don't Yeah, we don't have to work at, we don't have to try, we don't have to set out to be anxious or to worry. It comes pretty natural to us, especially when we see that everyone else is doing it. Everyone around us, as the world seems to be crumbling around us, it comes as second nature. But to not be anxious, that takes work. And that's the rest of this verse, verse 6 again. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. See, not only do we prune anxiety, but also at the same time, we must cultivate prayerlessness in our lives. Prayer is the antidote for us to anxiety, that we are to pray for big things, we're to pray for small things, we're supposed to pray about everything. And if you are struggling with worry right now, here is what Paul tells us to do. This is what Scripture says. If you are struggling with worry, that what you should do is you should make a list. Take a piece of paper and write down every single thing that is worrying you, that is causing you anxiety. Every single thing that you can think of, write it down on that piece of paper. And then pray about it. Is it your health? 
family member's health? Is it the effects of being in isolation too long? Is the fact that your kids are missing out on school? Is the economic impact of this season? Is you're wondering, you want to help others, but you're not really sure how that works, and so it's causing you anxiety because you want to be a person who loves others? Maybe it's not even related to COVID-19. Maybe you're just someone who is worried about what other people think of you. Maybe you're worried about other health-related issues. Whatever it is, write it down. Write down whatever is causing you worry, whatever is causing you anxiety, write it down and pray about it. Not just once, but consistently. Every single time that it causes you anxiety, when you are tempted to worry, stop and pray. See, the thing about all of this fruit that we see here in this passage is that it really reminds us of who God is and, and who we are. And prayer is, is a beautiful gift from God for many reasons, but one of the reasons is it reminds us that we are not in charge, that we are not in control. And our culture doesn't like that. Our culture likes to, to believe that we are the ones who are in charge, that we are the ones who are in control of our own destiny. I think that's one of the reasons why we're not great at praying is because we live in a culture that prayer is completely foreign. Being dependent upon someone else for our needs is completely foreign to us. Prayer is a gift to us to remind us that we can't control much of anything. And yet at the same time, the one who does control everything cares, loves us, and delights to answer our prayers. I read one pastor earlier this week encouraged his people to be decidedly non-anxious. I love that language, decidedly non-anxious. I think it's a good term because it reminds us that this is not something that comes naturally. Being anxious comes naturally. Being non-anxious actually does not come naturally for us. But what if we tweak that term? And didn't just say that we were going to be decidedly non-anxious, but we shifted it from, from the negative to the positive and said that we were going to be decidedly prayerful as a people. That we would just own that this is not something that comes naturally to me, that this is something I have to work toward. And, and if I'm actually going to be good at praying, then I have to just suffer and deal with it and recognize that this is hard work. What if we became decidedly prayerful. Decided prayerfulness is the key to overcoming worry in uncertain times. It isn't ignorance of the realities of life. It isn't ignorant of the circumstances facing us that cause these doubts. It doesn't say that those things aren't, aren't real. Far from it, it recognizes that they are real, but they are instead just placed in their proper place. And it places us in our proper place as well. It recognizes that we are not able to control these things. But Jesus is. To use a quote we used earlier, glance at your problems or your worries, but gaze at Jesus. The final verse of this paragraph gives us the result of this fruitful life. Specifically, the fruit of, of, of decided prayerfulness. It's peace. Peace is the result of fruit in the valley, peace that will guard your hearts in the valley, Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Everyone longs for peace, don't they? 
Everyone longs for peace. Everyone's searching for peace. They, they want to find rest. They want to find peace in this life. And for those that are not in Christ, and for some of us that are in Christ but have our priorities mixed up, this peace is in large part bound up in our circumstances. And you know what that means for us? If our peace is contingent upon our circumstances, that means when our circumstances change, then my peace will change as well. And it might go away if our circumstances change for the worse. And so what I must do in order to maintain my peace is to do whatever I can to stop my circumstances from changing, to stop my circumstances from getting worse. In other words, peace that our world knows is peace that requires us to do something for it first. We are required to guard our circumstances for peace rather than peace just being given to us. But that's not what Jesus says here about the peace that he offers. Jesus doesn't say, I will give you peace, but first you have to guard me. You have to make sure that I can take care of you before I take care of you. He doesn't say peace. Peace comes from guarding your circumstances. He says, I will give you peace that will guard your hearts no matter the circumstances. No matter the hardship, no matter the worry that you find in your life, I will give you peace. And that's why Paul describes this peace as beyond the world's comprehension, something that surpasses all understanding, it's because it doesn't make sense. Peace that is freely given, rest that is freely given, that has nothing to do with our circumstances. Peace that's just simply found in God's presence. You know, as I think about this passage and what it's ultimately about, as we talk about this idea of fruitfulness in the valley, of being people who bear fruit, who are, are in the search of this peace, I just think of that. Fruitfulness in the valley comes from resting in God's presence. Comes from resting in God's presence. Each of us is in a season of uncertainty right now. It is new. It is foreign to us. In all honesty, it's more akin to the circumstances uh, of most of human history. It's really been just the last couple hundred years of modernity where we have deluded ourselves into thinking that we are actually in control. People in the Bible recognize they weren't in control. And as we find ourselves in this situation where we're facing the unknown, we can bear fruit. We can be a people of fruitfulness. We can cultivate the fruit of righteousness right now, just as the church in in Philippi did millennia ago by resting in God's presence. That this fruitfulness is found in God's presence. This past week, I read an article that I found immensely helpful. It's for organizations, leaders of organizations, and it didn't matter what organization, really. It was for leaders of churches, leaders of nonprofits, leaders of businesses, and whether they were large or small. And all of it, it just talked about how this coronavirus, how it's going to transform the way that we operate, not just for a couple of weeks, as though this is just a blizzard, that we just got to get through. And then once we're done, then we can go back to life as normal. This is not just something that we need to think about and how it will transform us for a couple of weeks, but, but this is going to be something that transforms us for months and for even years. To look at this more as like a season 
or, or an ice age, to use language in the similar vein. Now, don't get me wrong, this wasn't a doom and gloom article that said we're going to be stuck in our houses, that we're not going to be able to gather together, that sports will be canceled for decades and decades. That's not what it's saying. But it's saying that the way that churches and, and businesses work and operate right now, that will be transformed by the reality of this event. And if we don't, if we don't transform, if we don't change the way that we operate, we will suffer consequences for us. For it. And, and that is a terrifying thought. It is a terrifying thought because normal is preferred because that's what we're used to. And the prospect of changing everything that I do is not something that it really excites me all that much. It's hard work, especially in the valley. Especially when I just want to turn inward. But this article also argued that if you were willing to do the hard work right now in the valley, then you will flourish. Not just right now, but for years to come. Now you could, you could argue the, the weight of this paper, this article that I read, and that's besides the point. But as I was reading it, I, I just thought, this, this also applies to us right now as individuals. What would it look like for us to make changes as hard as they may be right now, not just to survive, but to flourish. What if we became a people who right now, in the midst of this hard time, cultivated joy, or who pursued gentleness toward others, who became decidedly prayerful with our lives? What if we began to, to bear fruit, not just to get us to the end of this season, then we can go back to normal, but what if we became a people that saw the fruit that we bear now become a pattern for all of life, even life after COVID-19? What if decades from now, your descendants said, my grandma or my grandpa is one of the most joy-filled people that I know? What if they say that they are the least self-serving person that I have ever met? That they said, I don't know anyone who prays more about the stresses and the worries that they face in their life. I don't know anyone who prays more and is less anxious. What if they said that about you? And you could point back to this moment, this season of hardship while you were in the valley and you said it all started right there. That's where I began to bear and cultivate that fruit. Fruitfulness is found by resting in God's presence and it can start right now. It can start in the valley, it can start in the hardship. The question is, will we be a people who bear the fruit of righteousness? Let's pray. Father, it is hard to live with such uncertainty around us. And yet we confess that you are in charge 
that you remain Lord. So help us to trust in you. Help us to be a people who see how you are at work in the midst of hardship, in the midst of this uncertain season, and to bear fruit. to cultivate joy, to cultivate gentleness, to prune anxiety and to become prayerful in our lives. Help us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.